I've been eager to have Rosemary Addis on the show for a long time, not only because she's founded some pioneering organizations in the social impact space, but also because she combines passion with eloquence in the way she communicates and in the way she tackles the many challenges and the opportunities for solving social issues with financial capital. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Now, Rosemary, like most of my guests, had some major career shifts in her journey towards impact. Early on, she earned herself a law degree and entry to the New York Bar. She became a partner at Allen's Linklater's that she would leave the law behind to help define the path of this nascent industry in Australia. But as she explains in our conversation, the skills she learned around problem solving and relationship building were vital in this next stage. In 2013, she helped to establish the Australian Advisory Board to the G8 Social Impact Investment Task Force. And part of this process involved helping to build Impact Investing Australia as the organisation that would manage it. It was a big moment. Australia was the only country outside the G8 invited to work with the task force, which has since evolved to become the global steering group on impact investment. Since then, she hasn't slowed down. She's the senior advisor to the UNDP's SDG Impact Project, and we dig into what they're up to and what they're trying to achieve. Now, we sway across a whole range of topics in this one, but it's all good stuff, so I got a lot out of it. I hope you do too. There's lots of links, so please head over to the website at johntreadgold.com for all of those. And if you want to keep the conversation going, please follow along on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're an Apple user, I'd love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes because that's the best way to help other people find the show. All right, nothing left to do but dive in. So here's my conversation with Rosemary Addis. Here we go. Rosemary, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's long overdue. Uh, we have so much to talk about. You've been so central to the growth of the impact investing market and ecosystem here in Australia and also to helping Australia have an influence in the global policy discussions. But you weren't always focused on the capital markets and social impact. For many years, you were a lawyer. You made it to partner of a major firm. And so to get us started, I'd love to hear about that, that day, that moment when you made the decision to shift from law and focus on the intersection of of social impact and financial markets. Well, thanks, John, and thanks for inviting me on for this discussion. Really delighted to be part of getting the message out there to your audience. I would say that it was a transition that took a little while because, as you pointed out, you you know you work hard to get to uh, to that position in a law firm, and I really loved my career in the law. I also had the extraordinary privilege to be involved in a range of things in the management of the firm and for our clients, including in our pro bono practice. And all of that made me hungry to explore more that was out there and to see where I could make a contribution. And in particular, some of our work with with clients on the social side really made me curious about how we could apply some of the tools that we were using in the broader landscape of economic innovation, which was where a lot of my practice was, uh, in the social side as well. 
But once I took that leap, you know, I've been fortunate that there's been a lot of opportunities, but also it's been a bit of a journey in, in really getting to understand what that meant, including to learn from many people in the community sector. Yeah, and I'm sure a, a career in law requires a really deep skill set and you, you obviously developed that. What in particular do you think you took away from that experience? What sort of skill set, what, what qualities um, have really helped you going forward when you sort of moved on? I think the qualities that helped me was a, a problem-solving capacity where my practice was most things that came across my desk had been through a couple of people's two hard baskets and kind of focused discipline to then trying to get to solutions that were actually meaningful for the client because ultimately, you know, you can be a smart lawyer, but if you can't present a solution to the issue the client's facing, then you're not really providing the value that they need. Yeah, I can imagine problem solving would be a real value add there. And and I think at that early stage when social impact investing was really nascent, you would need a lot of uh, innovation, a lot of confidence, and I guess the willingness to jump in and, and feel confident that you could solve the many problems and kind of imagine the future that you hope and, and sort of make a pathway to get there. And you've been really central to shaping the market in Australia, but you've also helped push Australia's influence further afield. You led Australia to be the only non-G8 country to be on the Social Impact Investment Task Force in 2013, which then turned into the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing. And Australia has a seat among 16 other countries now. 23 countries, in fact, now, with another 10 or 15 on the way. Wow. Okay, there we go. An update. Very good. And uh, I guess the body in Australia was the Australian Advisory Board run by Impact Investing Australia. And I'm sure that was uh, a pretty intense role and really would have pushed your problem solving and relationship building skill set to its limit. But you clearly did really well there. And so I just wonder, you know, I'm sure a lot of my listeners sort of appreciate that history, but I'd love to dig in and, and kind of understand where Australia sits in, I guess, the macro perspective, because we look at it in terms of numbers often, in terms of, you know, deals made or funds under management. But how do you think broadly? I mean, we often hear that Australia is punching above its weight um, in the fact that we were having an influence back in 2013. But nowadays, we've got a relatively small population, but doing quite a lot. How do you see it? How do you see us fitting into the, the with those other 23 countries? So I think where Australia fits in this is, is partly a function of the fact that we have elements of a lot of different cultures from around the world. And so our experience can speak to, you know, the UK markets as well as the US markets, the European markets and our, um, and our neighbours around Asia. And that positions us really strongly to be a testbed for things. And so notwithstanding that our own markets can be quite thin and don't have some of the depth of international markets, the kind of accumulated knowledge and the curiosity that's available in the Australian markets and sometimes the, the humility we can bring to, to things as well is something that positions Australia really well to play a leadership role. Our positioning in Asia is also really important and something that I think hasn't yet had quite enough airplay in terms of the role we can and should be playing in our region and helping to ensure that some of the capital investment is getting to solutions to issues that are affecting billions of people across across the region. And, and it's a huge opportunity for Australia to export some of our R&D and experience and, and know-how into the neighbouring markets as well. Yeah, it's a great reminder of, of what we do have as a, as a core skill set, institutions and a, um, a good foundation of, of law. 
And I wonder, do you have any sort of case studies or examples of, um, of, of projects that Australia has done that have that sort of led the way, that have been innovative and that others have learned from? Yeah, I would say that there's a number that we can highlight. So in the social enterprise space, uh, a lot of people have learned from the experience of Good Start, which many people will know is now a decade or so old as an example and born out of crisis, as many good innovations are, um, of the collapse of the ABC Learning Centres to really form what became Australia's leading social enterprise and a significant contribution to the thinking around impact investment in a private equity sense. It was, of course, led by uh, Michael Trail and the team at, at SVA and brought together a number of partners from National Australia Bank through to the Brotherhood of, of St Lawrence and others in, in that mix. And so that was an important example and something that people have taken a lot of learning away from and including that there are areas where we have a mix of social issues in areas where demand is growing, where you also have investable assets like you know, actual buildings where services are, are delivered and areas where there is the government revenue stream that goes into them, where we can look for these opportunities to actually build social enterprise at scale. In that part of the market, we've also had Impact Investing Australia has been running a, a grants program that was piloted initially with National Australia Bank and is now supported through the Sector Readiness Fund of the Department of Social Services. And that's really demonstrating that impact-driven enterprises can raise capital and can scale and grow. There's some terrific examples coming through that, like higher up, connecting people with disabilities with with carers through online platforms, AbilityMate, which is using 3D printing to help revolutionise the way that we create splints and supports for kids with cerebral palsy, as well as Vanguard Laundry in Queensland. And, And there's a number of examples there. But it's also highlighting the important role of intermediaries and advisors who really get this space and helping some of them to show what they can do in the market. So I think there's some terrific intermediaries here in Australia, some of which, like Social Ventures Australia, have grown out of the venture philanthropy area, some of which have grown up in the impact space, uh, like social outcomes or impact generation partners. And then we're seeing new people enter the space, including some of the established players from law firms and, and larger consulting firms as well. I think the other thing that people look to here is how our super funds are, are responding and, and where they're taking on the messages of sustainability, some of them looking at the sustainable development goals like CBUS and HEST are probably being a leader in the way they're thinking about impact in a more integrated sense and have been putting some capital to, to work to prove what's possible uh, through the allocations that they've made. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point about our place in Asia and the way we interact with our neighbours. And I, and I talk to a lot of my guests about this and just trying to, to feel through uh, the relationship Australia has with our neighbours in the Pacific, you know, in the most immediate neighbourhood, but then broader through Asia. And I just wonder, you know, you've got such a broad experience. Are there any opportunities that you see in Asia that you might be surprised that others haven't sort of jumped on and that you think have a lot of potential? I think we've seen some of that potential through groups like Leapfrog Investment, which is headquartered in in Sydney, showing that you can look at markets differently and look at at some of the need in those markets and and their areas being 
uh, insurance and, and health services to say, well, there's a big market and a big population here and people will pay within their means and you can create a sustainable, viable business as well as investing in, in solutions. And I think there's much more room for some of that thinking from Australia into the Asian markets. I think there's a range of reasons why people have perhaps not been as familiar with some of the Asian markets um, perhaps been put off by experiences some time back but that it's this is really an opportunity now to use the platform of the sustainable development goals and the changing markets in our region to to reimagine what's possible there's some terrific work that was done by pacific rise which is supported by department of foreign affairs and, and trade and has had a number of of terrific operators involved saying instead of looking at these areas of the Pacific as, as markets with problems. How can we look at, at the future that could be created there and what are the things we could be investing in today that will help us take us to that future tomorrow? We picked up on this through the Australian Advisory Board in the work we did on scaling impact last year to really look at some of the pressing issues in Asia and identify a number of areas, particularly in infrastructure and enterprise, where we think that there are opportunities for Australia to be taking a more proactive role today and to be really tackling some of the, the barriers to open up those markets into the future. Well, that's it. We've been renowned with our, our big um, pools of fund in the super funds with our infrastructure prowess. So taking that to Asia and adding the impact lens, I think, has a lot of potential. And that gets me to think about, I read a little bit about your work with the UNDP and their SDG impact program. Can you give us some details of, of what you've been doing with them? Yeah, so SDG Impact is a really interesting initiative, which is a, a startup within the UNDP. UNDP, as many of your listeners will know, is the development arm of the United Nations and has a footprint across more than 170 countries. And they have been much more active in the development side and in building um, information and understanding of the markets in which they operate rather than the investment side. And they have a really important role as stewards of the sustainable development goals. So as they look at the opportunity for bringing more private capital towards investing in things that will help us achieve the sustainable development goals, they've been looking at what's the unique contribution that they can make. And I'm supporting the leadership and team there who are driving three key pillars of, of work under the umbrella of SDG Impact. One is market intelligence and really vital role of taking some of the, of the data that they have in multilaterals, and in particular that UNDP has, and making it available in a market-facing way. So as you would know, a lot of the data that's available in governments and multilaterals isn't very friendly to the markets to help them actually see where are the investment opportunities and so what this is doing is taking that information and filtering it through a process of looking at what the problems are, but also where within the sphere of a particular issue is there investable opportunities. So, for example, with the first country being Brazil, looking at the level of, of grain that gets lost between the point of production and the end point, and it's up around 50%, which is huge when you think that this is the fourth largest food producer in the world. And so looking at investable solutions like grain storage. The second pillar of SDG impact relates to what we've heard from the market of people really saying we're interested in investing towards the SDGs, but 
we need to move beyond classifying activities within these 17 goals and, and actually planning for and authenticating what's actually helping to move us closer towards achieving those goals. And this is an initiative that is putting practice standards into the, into the market. So basically, how do we look at setting goals? How do we look at impact management practice and the transparency and accountability that's going to be required to really drive strong investment that can clearly be seen to be taking us towards achieving the SDGs. And that's to be backed by a certification framework and an SDG impact seal for market leading practice. I'm proud to say Australia's had a big role in that with our colleague Fabian Michaud also playing a significant role in drafting those standards. And then the UN is also going to use its footprint across these countries to help facilitate some of the discussions that will be needed to realise the investment opportunities. So it's a it's a unique positioning for the UNDP coming into investment markets, but doing so not as an investor, but wearing the hat of the steward of the SDGs to try and accelerate progress. And I think that that, that SDG fact is a really important one in terms of moving beyond just um, you know classification of, of projects and, and operations and authenticating and getting some really clear processes there. At a really practical level, if you were a I don't know, a large, a large company in Australia, you know, even medium size, and, and you'd felt that you'd made that first step, but perhaps, you know, you hadn't uh, really shifted the core of your operations that you were still finding it difficult to get SDGs being a conversation point that was being had right at the top of the, you know, the C-suite decision makers to really make it a part of, of the processes of the company and really leading the strategy. What do you think are some of the first steps that can help people take it to the next step so that, you know, I guess everybody can work together? For many organisations, they start looking at it in, in chunks at a particular initiative and having the support from the top. And we do talk in the practice standards about the importance of culture and the support from the top and through the governance of the organisation for things that are SDG enabling. So I think starting with perhaps one or more initiatives within the organisation and building out the conversation from there is a good way to start. I often say to people, once you put impact on the agenda, it's like buying a red car. You start to see red cars everywhere in the street and you are more focused on it because it's there on the agenda. I think the other thing we're finding that these practice standards are, are really good way for those who are interested within organisations to start doing a bit of a gap analysis and saying, well, these are the things we are already doing and these are the things where there might be room for improvement. And they've been specifically designed to help people to take that journey from where they are now towards more market-leading practice around the SDGs and to bring others through that conversation of what that looks like. Yeah, thank you. And, and Rosemary, you, you're a really clear speaker. I think your communication is another skill set of yours that, that's really powerful. And I think that's part of the reason why you've uh, had you know, many of the roles you have. And so I'd love to hear maybe a little bit about how you developed that skill set. And was it a process you learned or was it just doing, doing it lots and lots and, and getting up on stage? Well, thanks for that, John. I would say that it's something that's come gradually. It didn't come naturally to me. I'm a natural introvert. And so something that I've worked hard on building over time, you know, you often find yourself in situations where you have a short time frame to leave a powerful impression on people and to be clear about what you want to take away from a situation. I've also benefited hugely, particularly in the last eight years or so, from working with people like Donald Simpson, who is an 
ex-McKinsey Communications person who I was fortunate through a, a range of circumstances to hire into the work we started in the Australian government to help us sharpen the message. And, and I've learned an enormous amount from him and from others who we've had the opportunity to work with. So it is a skill, as you say, and it's something that for me has certainly been something to build over time and with practice and with the wisdom of, of others who are more specialised in that area. That's it. Well, that's really encouraging. I mean, that's part of the reason I started this podcast. It wasn't because I was a great speaker. It was because I wanted to become a better one. And so I'm, I'm really glad my listeners have, have stuck with me and I'm, I hope I'm improving, but I still do uh, struggle to get you know, my point out and really get to the heart of the question. But uh, I think you're right. I think finding the specialist in, and, and I guess paying for the skill set and, and putting that effort into finding people who are very good at it is really important. Um, and I think that's true in, in a whole lot of... Uh, field of life and I think we can learn from that and I guess I do I am keen to to get a little bit more into the the numbers and the finance side of things and 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 where we're at with impact investing in Australia and we do have some great data coming out and and the benchmarking reports that impact investing Australia released many years ago have been getting better and better and we've got better and better data and so just running through a few things the first benchmarking report the key figure was a market size of 1.2 billion dollars that was the middle of 2015 two and a half years later to the end of 2017 that had grown by 4.6 billion to 5.8 so that's a yearly increase of roughly almost 2 billion 1.8 billion so my question is to the end of 2019 that'll be two years since the last report where do you think we're at now Will we be pushing a $2 billion yearly increase? You know, will we be above $10 billion? Will it hit 20 What are your thoughts there? So one of the reasons we started the benchmarking early was so that we could understand what was developing. And I think it's important to point out that the benchmarking report is about the product that's in the Australian market rather than all of the activity in Australia. So it doesn't capture some things like direct investment or the investment by Australian investors into the region or or globally. So it's a subset, but it's an important one in terms of us having comparison and the growth figures. I don't think it's going to be a linear growth trajectory year on year. I think we will see exponential jumps and I certainly hope we'll continue to see exponential jumps. What I think is important from the data is we see the direction of travel. So we can see that the fixed income product has grown the most between 2015 and 2017 in dollar terms, but we're also seeing patterns in the type of activity. So we're seeing the social enterprise lending activity grow significantly in terms of the volume of transactions. And so that points us to areas where we there are still gaps, for example, in the infrastructure sections and also where there's opportunities to find transactions of larger scale, like in the social enterprise sector. I think we will continue to see growth in the bond market and we'll see an expansion from climate bonds into social bonds and sustainable development bonds. You know, I think as we can build impact practice, I'm very hopeful that we will also see some of the much greater numbers in sustainable and responsible investment more intentionally directed towards impact in a way that we can actually say that's part of impact investing. And those numbers are are much larger. So I think we will see the growth in more of a geometric progression. The work we did with JB Weir in, in 2012, we predicted 32 billion by within the decade, so basically by 2022, uh, I would hope that that is still a, a realistic goal. 
Yeah, incredible. Great to hear that, that it's an exponential curve because that's, uh, that's the way you want it to be. And I think, as you mentioned, the fixed income side is dominant in terms of the dollar figures. And I'm guessing that's made up of, of mainly green bonds and those kinds of structures which lend themselves to scale. And so then we look at social enterprise and the private equity side, and there are lots of deals, but they don't have the big ticket figures. How do you think we can push scale? Do you think that that's a place where we will be able to see scale? And what do you think is helping there? I think there is potential for scale. I think there's latent demand in areas of the Australian markets. I don't think we've yet seen a a full exploration of what are the finance needs of the community and and non-profit sector. You know, how can we work in ways that expand their toolbox of funding and financing options? And if we could do that, for example, looking to other markets in things like community sector bonds, I think that we'd see growth in in those areas. And the infrastructure component uh, where we can look at at areas like social housing and affordable housing and other community amenity and really build into that lens that says we want to build impact into this side that it's about delivering better and not just more, then I think we'll start to see some significant growth in in those areas. Australia does infrastructure well and if we can start to build the impact lens in, there's huge potential there. Definitely, definitely. And and there's a, an issue that I've been getting really interested in, and that's the question of whether being driven by supply or demand in terms of demand being investor demand for deals um, and supply being, you know, the social enterprises building the projects, uh, sort of often described as, as investors pulling service providers into the space. So I'd love to get your thinking on how important it is to have balance there and I guess which side um, policy is more effective um, at helping to push forward? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. And I, uh, from my perspective, I think you need both. You need growth in the demand side that investors are looking for transactions, but also that some of the bigger investors and governments see that people, including you know mums and dads and, and those of us who have pension funds and other things, care about that being invested aligned with our values and in the things we care about as a society. So that part's important. Obviously, having the transactions that can be invested into is also important. The piece that gets left out of this equation in the work that we've led here in Australia and and globally is the intermediation. People are looking at, is there enough capital? And in Australia, you know, if you were to generalise, you'd say there's willing capital, but there's not yet enough investable deals. But the piece that we think is a real game changer is being able to boost the intermediation. And that's about having people whose job it is to bring together that supply and demand or to parcel up the demand in a way that it can be invested in much more readily. And that is really the thing that will make the biggest difference most quickly, in my view, because it takes the pieces that are out on the board on the demand side and helps to package them up in a way that investors can engage with in a much more straightforward way without having to to make multiple changes to, to some of the ways they do things today. So, And while we want them to integrate impact, we also need to make it easier to participate. So one of the things we've done a lot of work on is what would then accelerate that process of building intermediaries? One of the things you know, that we applaud the government for doing is putting money into things like the sector readiness funds because that does help make sure the intermediaries get paid. However, it's not building the intermediation at scale that enables us to, to really accelerate this in the same way that we could do if we put 
a wholesaler into the market. So we've spent a lot of time designing something called Impact Capital Australia, which builds on international experience, not just in impact investment, but in how other markets develop as something that we think would be quite a unique public good to pump prime the market and get that kind of intermediation that can really accelerate that joining of supply and demand on terms that make sense and build more intermediaries in the market in the process. Hmm. And I guess that involves uh, building sort of a subject matter expert kind of professionalism as well. You have the, the finance, the old guard to an extent, rather than expecting them to suddenly become social impact experts and then on the flip side, um, expecting social entrepreneurs to become professional financiers. It's, it's that impact investment professional in the middle and trying to, yeah, I guess, professionalize it. I mean, is that the way you see it? And that leads me to this question of, do we need the development from an educational perspective, from a university perspective? I mean, there's certainly a lot of people have approached me from this podcast saying, you know, I work in finance, I sit here doing the same thing day in, day out, and, and I don't feel I'm doing it with purpose and impact investing seems like a, a direction I could take that would satisfy my intellectual skills, but also wanting to make a difference. Um, do you see those two things coming together? Yeah, so the first part I would answer by saying something like Impact Capital Australia is about putting a go-to place in the market that's the market champion and sets the pace for transactions even where they haven't been done before and so overcoming that that issue of track record and being prepared to be the first mover investor in quality intermediaries so that you can break that down and so it creates that centre of capability that you're talking about. We also, as you're saying, need to build that capability and skill set more broadly, not only so that more people who, like the listeners you're referring to, are interested in this area can actually bring together the meaning in their skill set in their day jobs, but also because unless we're training people in the way forward at university, then we have to retrain the next generation. And if we believe this is the way of the future, which I do, and I think given your podcast, you probably do as well, then we need to be helping people build that skill set earlier on in their careers and take that out into the market with them. And that's a way that we can really create change. I'm pleased to say that as part of its work, the UNDP is supporting a consortium of academics to come together to develop and launch a training program, which will be led by Duke University. And so that will be on a Coursera or similar platform, which will open up the opportunities for education in this in this space and training people in impact management and how to integrate impact in, in their work. There's a lot of scope for the Australian university sector to build on some of the pockets of excellence at Centre for Social Impact and, and elsewhere. And also for people who are interested, we can help direct them to where there are courses. So you know, Melbourne University, for example, has had a, a short course and they're not always getting the match between the, the type of listener base who's interested and filling that course. So I'm sure that uh, we could work with you, John, to, to make sure that we're matching people to where the opportunities are currently and then encouraging the university sector to take this up in a more integrated way. Yeah, and it'd be great to get some of those links off you and I can put those in the show notes so that if people are interested in, in courses and all those sorts of things, they can um, have a resource to go to. And yeah, that work between, was it Duke and, and Coursera and UNDP, that sounds like a really interesting model. And I think that that'd be perfect and, and 
pretty in pretty high demand. And that brings me around to another issue that's a tricky one to talk about, but it's remuneration. You know, the world of finance is renowned or sort of infamous for having really high salaries and impact investing then fits in in some ways. But in other ways, you know, perhaps there's an expectation that people would take a pay cut as in we do with not-for-profits and and these sorts of things. And I think it's something that people, yeah, rarely talk about openly. But in impact investing, do you feel that wages and salaries are on par with the finance colleagues? So it's a really interesting question and an important part of the conversation. So I think we still have some dominant cultural kind of memes that say if you're going to do something social that you need to somehow wear a hair shirt or, you know, that isn't valued in the same way. And I do think we have to overcome that and it's really important that we do and that we view some of the specialist expertise in a way that's comparable. I think what it comes down to is alignment of incentives and there are areas we know in the broader financial markets where the alignment of incentives needs some adjustment to be you know, in line with best practice governance and we need to see impact as, as a part of that and the impact governance and the incentives around impact for practitioners also built into their remuneration structures. So I'm not of the school of thought that says you should just intrinsically be paid less because you're working on uh, finance from the impact side. I do think, though, that we're going to see an adjustment more generally across the board in terms of salaries and I think that how we align the incentives for impact as well as for financial profit will be an important part of professionalising this sector. Yeah, I think that's such an important element of this discussion and and central to it, I think, is this issue, and this might be getting a little bit philosophical, but the question of, of the future and what is it and then how do we perceive it? And I think in finance, the future is, is always going to be something that's observed and managed and that's you know, largely what estimating risk is all about. But in impact investing, I think it becomes more of uh, using finance as a tool to create the future that we want. So I, w- I wonder how you see that distinction and, and is is the distinction really in that view of, of how the future is held and, and how we should manage it? So uh, I think the two key things in, in your question there, one is, you know, what's the future we dare to imagine and then and how are we going to make that happen? And what's the purpose of capital in that? And my colleague Jen Emerson's written, some of your listeners will know, on the purpose of capital. We can add to your links a, a musical version that some young colleagues of his have put together just in the last week or so on, on that. Um, in fact, investing the, the musical, the What If song, which is fantastic. But I think, you know, sometimes we feel constrained in terms of our choices or we're waiting for the kind of other shoe to drop from the from the top and actually taking more ownership of what the future looks like by empowering ourselves to make choices and not, you know, to wait for others to lead really opens up a lot of opportunities. And I certainly see capital then as, as being one of the tools that we have in looking at how we create that future. And once we kind of accept that that there's a whole range of ways we can work to solve the problems that the world is facing and to uh, meet the sustainable development goals and to build on the incredible development and you know opportunities of data and technology and human ingenuity that we that we have, some of the things that constrain us, like resources, you know, like uh, looking for leadership are, are problems to solve. And, and once we see it in that frame, then we, you know, can just get on and say, well, how are we going to solve them uh, so that we make sure we're moving towards the future we want to see for our kids? 
That's right. That's right. And I think, yeah, Jed Emerson is uh, is really profound leader in that space and, and asking that question, what is the purpose of capital? I think that that's re- a really important element and something that uh, is a simple question really to ask all of the time. You can ask it looking at business, finance, how economic structures work. And I think it's odd that it hasn't been asked in the past. Maybe it had, but, but it really is coming to the fore now. And of course, that's a great book by Jed Emerson, but I'd love to ask you for... Uh, another book recommendation, something, perhaps a book that you think everyone should read. On the work side, I would say that Jim Collins's Good to Great for the Social Sector is a really short but punchy book and important for anyone who's looking to make an impact to, to read and have a think about. Uh, the other book that's more on the side of a, a novel or autobiographical that has been really meaningful to me is uh, Down and Out in, in Paris and London, which is the George Orwell autobiographical look at, at his time on the streets of Paris and London. And there's a, a reminder to all of us that we could have a very different life through a combination of some poor decisions and bad luck. Um, and that, for me, that, that keeps it real in terms of humility and empathy for other people. Oh, well, I'm a big fan of George Orwell. That'll be great. I hadn't heard of that one, but I'll be checking that one out for sure. All right, Rosemary, I'm going to let you go because you've uh, taken a lot of your time today, but some really great insights there and and was trying to get a little bit deeper, but uh, I sort of waffled a little bit with my questions. But thank you for for some really coherent replies. I think that's really valuable for everybody listening and hopefully we can uh, touch base again soon. It's a pleasure to join you, John, and very happy to contribute uh, to this going forward. Good stuff. Thank you, Rosemary. Thanks, John.